Sometimes it's very difficult to start speaking, <laughs> especially when there's kind of a this real presence of the silence. And it's my, my role to kind of interrupt it. So it can be an interesting experiment to, um, to, to speak, to listen, with a sense of, of the silence um, within which all of that is happening. You know, that kind of a space that's, that's holding the, the exchange, as Nathan was reminding us yesterday. You know, a talk like this um, seems to be coming from a specific direction and through a particular body, uh, but is actually much more intricately conditioned than that. Maybe before I continue, I'll, after using this word intricately, I'll just say that please, if I, if I use a word you don't understand or say something you don't understand, then please stop me. So, so one thing that um, we've, been, we've been starting to point to, and you've probably been um, also seeing in your own experience is that we begin to see, we can start to see that most of the time we view life, we view ourselves, we view things as having some inherent nature or solid permanent identity. A lot of big words. <laughs> yeah. And this includes internal phenomena yeah, that we experience within ourselves, like um, physical sensations. I was speaking yesterday morning about the bodily fabrications, giving the example of the knee and the pain in the knee. So we see that as something solid and separate and, and fixed, with a fixed identity. And it also includes our emotional life, our mental life, our mind states, our moods, our thoughts. And it also includes external things, yeah, other people, events that arise, things. Oh, this is like this, yeah. Do you recognize that? <laughs> from your experience, a little bit, yeah. It's something we're beginning, like, when, we take, when we spend time in, in silence and really spend time with ourselves and observe, witness our experience, it begins to be revealed, yeah, it begins to be revealed for us. And the teachings really point to this. Um, and there's a value in, in hearing these teachings and then in kind of really seeing how do I experience this myself? Yeah, so it's not just theoretical, but we begin to, to explore it for ourselves. So, you know, I'll give, I'll give some examples of this, which, which um, I'm sure at least some people here have had, you know. For example, um, 
the classic yogi experience of um, counting the days <laughs> or, you know, the hours <laughs> or the minutes, you know, uh, where I'm okay. Day three, that's 36.5% of the time or whatever. I didn't actually calculate it today, but I have done that on retreats before. <laughs> yeah. As if there's, as if time or a retreat is something really solid and fixed. Yeah. And yet when we reflect on our own experience of time, yeah, it's not solid or fixed, is it? You know, sometimes it goes quickly. And sometimes it doesn't. Yeah, the the the, the clock, the, the watch will say the same time. Yeah, say a forty-five minute meditation. Yeah, and sometimes it feels like this, and sometimes it feels like that. Yeah, so it's we we tend to give this nature, this fixed nature to things, and then to relate to them in that way. And when we begin to look in more detail at our experience, we see ah, actually. Is it like this? Do five minutes always feel the same? Or is the experience of time, for example, I kind of I don't know why time came up, it's quite a, an intricate concept, <laughs> but the experience of time varies according to conditions. Yeah. Is my mind peaceful or not? Yeah. If we're just talking in the context of meditation. Is my body comfortable or uncomfortable? Yeah. Is my mind state um, spacious or contracted? Yeah. All of these will have an effect on the experience. Do you agree? Yeah. Good. At least a little bit. And if you don't, then that's also fine. You know, just just keep just keep looking. Yeah, just keep looking for yourself. So we, we believe the, this, these ideas that we have about things and we often identify with them. Yeah, as Nathan was speaking about last night, we often identify with things. I can't sit for 45 minutes. Yeah. It becomes an identification because, you know, up till now or in this moment, it's difficult to sit for 45 minutes and maybe I've even forgotten <laughs> that, you know, two sittings ago, I was actually enjoying myself, you know, but so we, we solidify and we identify. And this is a big part of what creates suffering in life, this process of solidifying things and of identification, yeah, of kind of forgetting or disregarding the, the complex nature, the complex nature of things. So, you know, for example, we had great teachings today from nature. <laughs> the weather changes. <laughs> yeah? The weather changes. And the weather changes and that affects the body, it affects the mind. Yeah? It affects experience. Yeah? Maybe, and this can go either way, maybe yesterday we loved being outdoors. And today it was like terrifying the idea of having to walk to the tent after lunch <laughs> in the rain. Or the other way around, you know, maybe it was too hot yesterday and today we're loving it. You know, it could go either way. But we, you know, the, the weather changes, affects the body, affects the mood. Yeah. 
we contract around that. Yeah, contract around that. We forget that the mood is also changing, just like the weather. The body state is also changing, just like the weather. Yeah, we take it to be true. We contract, and that brings more tension into the system, more identification, (coughs) more suffering. I'm miserable. I hate being up here. I hate the mountains, whatever it is. It all becomes very, very dense, very, very um, condensed. (coughs) So we forget that our mood, our mind state, the weather itself is also a dependent origination. Like Nathan was saying yesterday, it changes. It's caused by conditions that are constantly themselves conditioned, constantly in flux, in movement. And a lot of the suffering comes from that. And this is quite an important point important point because we take something to be solid and then our response to it solidifies that causes contraction and lack of fluidity in the system yeah it causes suffering for ourselves and suffering for others is that clear please say if not okay yes Jenna you talked about for a second like you're saying that the weather is changing and it's changing because so many other things are changing. Yeah. Could you talk about that just a little more? Yeah. 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 So that the weather, the outer weather, we can talk about this also as outer weather and inner weather in this case. The outer weather is, ch- is changing, yeah? Like there's this wonderful guy called the McLeod Gange weather geek <laughs> who... Uh, We've been lamenting the fact that he's disappeared from the world of internet at the moment. He usually gives very, very wonderful weather reports for this part of the world. Um, And he always gives us the big picture of the weather, for example. He'll say, ah, he gets very excited. Say, "Ah, next week, there's going to, or right now, there's there's this um, high pressure building over Afghanistan, you know. And this means that in our region, this and this is going to happen over the next days. Uh, So the weather is conditioned. Yeah, it's not fixed. Yesterday was sunny, today wasn't, you know. And it's not just one fixed thing that's changed. It's a whole movement of moisture, um, of pressure, um, you know, all kinds of things that kind of affect this, of mountains in the way, of, of bodies of water. You know, all of that coming together and creates a weather pattern. That's why it's so difficult to predict, yeah, because it's, it's dependent on countless conditions that come together. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. And can we say the same thing? And, and we can say the same thing about the inner weather. Yeah, our mind states, our emotions, um, our, our sense of our body is also conditioned by many, many things. Yeah, many, many things. It's like a, um, the image that's often given, given is like a net. Yeah, a net that, of conditions that comes together for, for anything to, to manifest in the world. It's also a way that we're connected, that we're not separate. Does that make more sense? Good. So seeing, you know, seeing this to whatever degree, this dependent origination, this interdependent nature of things, this conditioned nature of things, is a real uh, doorway to um, kind of a real doorway to freedom, 
from, from suffering, from a lot of the suffering in our lives. Yeah, seeing this conditionality. And I'm hoping to kind of get into this quite a lot more with you this evening. So seeing the interdependent nature, the mutually arising nature of things. <coughs> so, thanks Annika. <laughs> Let's take a simple example. Someone sneezes during meditation. <laughs> yeah, we've had a lot of, of practice of this over, the, over the, the today, particularly I think maybe a little bit yesterday. So we're here, we're meditating, someone sneezes. I think Nathan gave an example of this earlier today as well, or coughs. If the mind state is aversive, or the mind state is contracted, there'll be aversion, yeah, as a response to that. There'll be, oh, you're disturbing me, yeah. If there's a lot of space in the mind at that point, something else might arise, like compassion, yeah. Or, um, you know, a sense of, ah, thank you for being a mindfulness bell for me, yeah. So... This is another example, you know, it's not in the thing itself, yeah, it's not in the cough or the sneeze or the dogs barking or, you know, the weather being windy and wet. It's not in the thing, it's in the relationship. Yeah, it's in the relationship. So the experience itself of that is a disturbance or that is a support or that is an invitation for compassion. It's not in the thing. It's not in the thing. And this this understanding can take us incredibly deep. This is what the Buddha actually understood under the tree. You know, he became awakened very, very deeply. Yeah. Things come together, they dependently originate and that the mind itself, our mind itself, is involved in how we perceive things. Yeah. So it's not just that things are conditioned, but the mind itself is a condition. Yeah. Yes. Um, do you think, like, um, as the Buddha experienced it once really deeply, did he really experience it just once, or? Because I feel like I always forget it again, and I yeah. remember them again, again, and again. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. Wonder if it's like this really this one huge experience which frees you from like whatever. Yeah. Like I mean, my understanding is not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that is an ongoing thing that you keep deepen with, deepening with. But even if we look at the Buddha and the myth of the Buddha, um, you know, he spent forty days and nights. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then 40 years teaching it. And, yeah, so, yeah, we can, we can take it where we, where we, you know, whatever feels comfortable for us. But certainly, like you say, it's, it's something that we deepen with and deepen with and deepen with. And the understanding grows and grows and grows. Yeah. So the mind itself is involved in how we perceive experience. Yeah. It's really, um, yeah, incredibly precious insight that we can begin to touch on. It's involved in, in how we perceive what we take to be neutral phenomena. Yeah? We take things to be neutral. Yeah? A sound is neutral. It's got a, or it's got in, in itself, it's got the characteristic of pleasant or unpleasant. Yeah? 
And yet, we begin to question that. It's not in the thing, it's in the relationship. So I want to give an example of this. I carry this, I've been carrying this with me since August, this piece of paper. I probably haven't got time to tell you the story, now. I haven't at all. Okay. Anyway, it's an article. And um, it, it speaks about um, some experiments they made to do with pain management. So let me just find the right place. Okay, so this is a classic experiment involving three groups of patients that were all recovering from major chest surgery. Yeah, so they were all had similar surgery, they were all in the same state of recovery, and they divided the patients into three groups. So all three groups were given um, the same saline solution, so placebo, basically. Yeah, it's just uh, they got a, a solution, an IV. Um, they all got the same one. It doesn't have any effect. Um, but they were told different things about what this was. Okay. So the first group was actually told nothing about what this was. Or they knew that amongst everything else they were being given, they were given the saline solution. Um, The second group were told that it was either a placebo, so either it had no effect, or it contained a a painkiller, something that would help them with the pain. And the third group were told that this this solution they were being given was a very, very powerful painkiller. Yeah, very, very powerful painkiller. So each group was told a different thing. Now, all three groups of patients... Um, were also told that in addition to this saline solution, they could also get more painkillers if they needed them. Yeah? So they could ask for additional pain relief in addition to whatever they thought they were getting. Here's the interesting thing. <laughs> yeah? So everyone who participated in the experiment asked for extra pain relief. Yeah? All the patients, they all asked for this, these extra painkillers. But the third group, the ones who were told that they were receiving a very, very powerful pain um, painkiller, they asked for the least. Yeah. So they thought they were getting a strong painkiller through the saline solution. They were offered more pain relief. They took it, but they took a lot less than the other two groups. Is that clear? So what does that say? This is fabrication in Dharma language. The mind plays a part in how we perceive experience. Yeah? This is not done by um, Buddhists or Dharma practitioners. Yeah? It's just an ordinary scientific experiment coming from the same interest of how does the mind operate. You know, how does the mind operate? So the expectation... The thought, I'm already receiving some very strong pain relief, affected either the perception of the pain or the ability to manage the pain. You know, we don't know which one. But it resulted in asking for less painkillers than other people. I think it's, you know, incredible. 
incredibly mind-blowing. So in Dharma language, this, this involvement of the mind is called fabrication. Yeah, it's called fabrication. Um, it points to the way the mind is involved. I've been saying it about, I don't know how many times I've said this. Yeah, fabrication, creation yeah, of experience through the mind. So how we view and experience things is dependent on underlying views, expectations, mind states, attitudes, conditioning that we have. Yeah. Again, really simple examples of this. Um, I remember, I think this was last, last year maybe, I was teaching a retreat in, in um, central India. Well, it's north India, but uh, near Varanasi in Sarnat. And um, it, was, it was a bit cloudy and a bit cool. Uh, I found it very cold. I grew up in Israel. So I was kind of wearing a million layers. The manager of the retreat, who comes from Poland, was walking around with just, you know, a cotton shirt, and that was all the layers she wore, you know. And I, every time I saw it, it was like, you know, fabrication, you know, conditions. I'm used, my body's used to certain things, her body's used to something else. Yeah, we experience the same thing differently. Yeah, it's another example of this. So the way we look at things, um, all these underlying conditions affect what we experience. I might have to skip some of my examples. <laughs> Our good friend, who I've mentioned before, and teacher, Rob Obeah, he calls this, um, this understanding, yeah, that how we look at things affects what we perceive and how we perceive it. He calls it ways of looking. Yeah. So there's always a way, way of looking that's present when we experience anything. Yeah. That way of looking can be a mind state, it can be a mood, it can be a physical conditioning, um, it can be an expectation, it can be an attitude. Yeah. It can be a lot of different things, but there's always a way of looking present. Yeah. We're always seeing life through the mind. Yeah, and the mind has its own kind of imprint on what we experience. And this is really good news. <laughs> yeah. when, we, when, we, um, when we kind of bring that into our awareness, that that is going on, it's really good news. If we know that way of looking is present, if we begin to recognize the ways of looking that are present, we take them less seriously. Yeah? And we also can cultivate more of this pliability and flexibility of mind that we've been sp- speaking about so that we can apply ways of looking that are skillful and wholesome and believe less or let go of the ways of looking that bring suffering to ourselves and others. Yeah. So this is really, like I said, at the heart of the teachings, yeah, and at the heart of how we can use these teachings to um, decrease suffering for ourselves and in the world. So it opens up the possibility for us to go beyond the reactivity and the conditioned patterns that we have, this recognition. So, what I'm hoping to, to do tonight, 
Often when I start speaking about this, I get a little bit carried away, but I'll rein myself in. What I'm hoping to, 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 to speak about tonight in this context of ways of looking is um, actually what happens in our practice as we sit here and, um, and meditate. Yeah. Looking more in depth at one aspect of the practice. So you might remember that um, we broke down the process of, of the mindfulness aspect of the practice into three steps. Yeah. The intention to pay attention, bringing the attention to the object, then noticing that we're distracted and coming back. What I'd like to look at is what happens between that bringing the attention to the breath or the body or the metta, whatever we're doing. What happens between there and when we notice that we've been distracted? Or other ways we can say it, what are the common ways that we get pulled away from the object of our meditation? And how can we work with them skillfully? Because, you know... You may think it's only your mind <laughs> that does this. You might feel that it's only my mind that goes off into endless thinking, or it's only my mind that gets incredibly restless, or it's only my mind that gets incredibly confused. But these are actually you know, really common things yeah, that we all experience to different degrees yeah, and with different inclinations. Some may feel more than the others. They're really, really common, and it's really important to remember them, that they're not personal. You know, the, the, these ways, these distracting patterns of mind are not about you. Yeah, they're not your problem. <laughs> they're human tendencies, and we can work with them. You know, people have been doing this for thousands and thousands of years, yeah, working with this and getting results. <laughs> So, so I'm particularly, um, particularly going to look at patterns of mind that have a lot of intensity. Yeah. So you may have noticed already that sometimes, you know, you sit here and you're with the object of meditation and the mind gets distracted or wanders off, but that distraction is, is quite light, yeah? It might be quite easy to, to come back. It doesn't have a lot of, of stickiness or of pull to it. Yeah. At other times, it's very intense or very, very repetitious. Yeah. You come back and immediately you know, you're going back to the thought or the restlessness or the whatever it is. Yeah. If you, are you aware, you've experienced this distinction. Yeah. So, so we're... We're gonna, I'm going to kind of look at the more intense things yeah, that tend to really grab us and grip us. So if, if we're using the um, language of ways of looking, we can say that when there's this intensity, yeah, um, it becomes or it is a way of looking that then colors experience. Um, and then it has a lot of power. Yeah? It affects how we experience things. And that is a cycle that then feeds itself. Yeah. And I'll, I'll go more into it with some examples. So in the, in the, in the Buddhist tradition, in the Buddhist traditions, there's a lot of lists. Um, one of them is the list about these distracting patterns of mind. 
and there's five of them. You don't need to remember numbers or anything else. Um, but the five, there's five that are very, very common. And the, the first one is, is actually um, kind of like a pair. Yeah. And that's the, the movement of the mind towards either getting something or getting away from something or getting rid of something. Yeah, that's the other side. Yeah. So either it's something that I feel a kind of wanting towards, and it can be just a pleasant thought. Yeah, and I want to be more, have more of that pleasant thought. Or it's a, something that I'm aversive to, I'm pushing away. Yeah. I don't want this. Yeah. And, and, and these two are kind of, the, it's like two sides of the same coin. It's actually never one without the other. But we won't go into that yet. So this kind of movement of... um, And maybe to really say that we're less interested in what it is that we're being pulled towards or away from. Yeah, It's not the object that matters so much or whether the object is positive or negative. It's actually this movement. Yeah, because this movement itself is what repeats. Yeah, what repeats itself. Yeah, movement of desire for something, of wanting something, or a movement of aversion from something, of not wanting something. And often, as, as we become more familiar with this, as we look at it more, we can see that it's actually the movement is activating itself. So sometimes the objects are almost secondary, you know. It's not really about the thing. It's actually about that habit of mind that is so strong. That is so strong. Does that make sense to people? Yeah. So we can say that this is a movement away from direct experience to somewhere else. Yeah? And we can really feel it um, when we bring attention to the body and the energy body. You know, when I was speaking about it, I did this, reaching out for something. Yeah, I'm exaggerating, but we can actually really feel it. We're being pulled towards something. I don't know why I always do it to the side. It could be forward as well. So we're reaching out to something or we're kind of getting away from something, yeah. We can really actually feel it in the physical body and in the subtle, more subtle energy body as well, and in awareness. We can really feel that movement, which is um, really, really important that we can feel it, <laughs> and we'll get to that. So, yeah, again, my friend Rob calls this the push-pull. <laughs> yeah, it's like the push pushing away of something and getting pulled into something. Yeah, that's a really strong mechanism that arises. Second pair of um, distracting patterns of mind are to do with um, an imbalance of energy in the system. So if there's too much energy, there'll be restlessness. Yeah, too much energy in the system, there'll be restlessness both mental restlessness and physical restlessness. Yeah? And this will be agitation, um, can be anxiety, can be worry, manifests in a lot of different ways. A lot of like intense, um, rapid thinking, 
and mental restlessness. If there's too little energy, <laughs> yeah, too little energy, that will lead to um, a dullness in the mind and, and low energy in the body, so sleepiness. Yeah, we're still on day three, so it's still early days, but at some point you might experience that actually you're really well rested, and yet you sit down in, in the practice and you start nodding off. Yeah. So it's not about physical tiredness anymore. Yeah. But something in the imbalance of energy brings this sense of dullness and tiredness yeah, to the body. And again, we can become sensitive to how this manifests in the physical body and the energy body, and this is really helpful. So sometimes with the restlessness, uh, for example, we, we might find that we're actually kind of leaning forward into something. You know, we're not centered here in the moment in this, but we're actually kind of almost levitating <laughs> because there's so much kind of energy to get somewhere else. Yeah rather than where we are, we're at. And with the, the kind of low energy, this is really common. If you, if you feel low energy and dullness, check in with your posture. You know, very often we're slumped. Yeah, manifests in the body. And this will have you know, similar manifestations more in the awareness or the energy body. Yeah, so it'd be more subtle. But we can feel that. Yeah, and feeling it in the body, feeling it in the energy body is really helpful. So the fifth distraction, pa- distracting pattern of mind is um, kind of manifests as doubt and confusion. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. Um, I'm never going to get this. Should I be with the breath or the body right now? You know, and of course, all of this is natural <laughs> to a degree, but when it gets um, so intense that it kind of, that we freeze, yeah, that we actually freeze and are kind of unable to, to do anything or go anywhere, yeah. So doubt, confusion um, can either really manifest as self-doubt, you know, I can't do it, I'll never do it, I'll never get this. Everyone else is meditating. It's only me. There's this classic um, thing that meditation teachers say about, um, you know, sitting in a... So you're sitting in the hall here, and you, you know, you're really doing your best to practice, but it's really hard, and you think, okay, I'm just going to open my eyes for a moment. You open your eyes, and you look around the room, and everyone else is obviously a Buddha. You know, they're all sitting really graceful and settled and obviously kind of in deep states of peace and joy and calm and wisdom, whatever. They've gotten it all. And, you know, you sigh deeply at your own poor state and you close your eyes and do your best to come back to practice and then the person next to you opens their eyes. You don't know this. And they're looking around, despondent, you know, and ashamed of themselves and seeing all the other Buddhas, including you, practicing so well, you know. And I don't know what the origin of this story is, but I think it's a really good um, 
description of this mind state of, of, of self-doubt, you know, which comes with this measurement, you know, everyone else is doing so well and it's just me, you know, that's struggling and not getting it. Um, and it can also manifest as doubt in the teachings or the, or the, the teachers, you know. Oh, you know, this teaching isn't for me. I should have gone on a yoga retreat. That would have been so much more my thing and I would have, you know, resonated with it more and, you know, I'm really good with the body and whatever, you know, all these things. You're smiling, you must have had that thought. <laughs> and, and just recognizing that this is a natural movement of the mind, you know. It's, this is what human minds do, you know. And we can, we can recognize it, we can do what we're doing now, which is smile, you know, laugh about it, take it more lightly. Okay, this is what's happening right now. Yeah. It's a way of looking that's present. Can I see it as that? Yeah, see it as that. And how does that affect experience? So, I want to read a, a simile from the Buddha speaking about this. And it's one of my favorites. So, the Buddha uses the example, he um, uses the image of a very, very clear pool as um, the image of our mind. Yeah, so our mind is a very, very clear pool of water, so clear and so still that you can see a reflection in it, very, very clearly, like a mirror. That's the natural state of the mind. And then when this movement of, you know, getting pulled towards things, yeah, trying to get something, when that is present, it's as if the, someone threw some colored dye into the pool of water, yeah? So instead of being clear, it's colored, yeah? It's colored. It's not clear, it's, you know, blue or green or orange or whatever you want it to be, yeah? When that kind of pushing away of things is present in the mind, it's as if the the pool is boiling, (laughs) yeah? The water is boiling. Again, we can't see clearly, yeah, because it's boiling, it's bubbling, it's steaming. Yeah. Of course, one, one extreme manifestation of this pushing away of things is anger. Yeah. So we can relate that anger with that sense of boiling over. When, this, when the energy is low, yeah, and there's dullness and tiredness and that real feeling, the word that they often translate, uh, the English word is sloth. <laughs> it's a very obscure word, sloth. But it's like when we're so tired that we move really heavily and really slowly. So when that is present, it's as if um, the water, the, the pool of water is covered in, an al- in a very, very thick algae, you know, in, in water plants that are completely... Um, kind of suffocating the pool. Yeah, there's no freshness there at all. So a real kind of stagnation feeling. 
when there's restlessness, when there's so much, too much energy and there's restlessness, it's as if there was wind that's constantly blowing on the surface of the water and disturbing it. Yeah, constantly wind that's blowing on the surface of the water and disturbing it. So again, we can't see what's there. And when there's doubt and confusion, it's as if the water's very muddy. Yeah, it's been the mud on the bottom's been agitated and it's completely muddy. So we can't see clearly. So this simile really illustrates to us, you know, really clearly how these patterns of mind, how they affect the mind, these distracting, disturbing ways of looking. Yeah. How they disturb the mind. How they kind of affect perception and overlay experience. Yeah. If we think of, you know, a mind that's um, completely stagnated with you know this this sloth this tiredness we could see a really beautiful sunset and we wouldn't notice it yeah it overlays experience overlays experience affects our perception so when we know you know and when we remember and when we recognize you know this isn't what is happening, but this is how I'm perceiving it through this mind state. When we, um, when we can recognize that, we're less trapped in the mind state itself. Does that make sense? This is a really important key. We have some space around it. We know, okay, there's desire here or there's aversion here, and that's shaping my experience. Yeah? There's heaviness here, there's low energy here, there's restlessness here. It's shaping my experience. And we have some space. We're not that. Yeah, we've got some space. So I'd like to, to speak a little bit. I know you're tired, <laughs> I can see it. I'd like to speak a little bit about how to work with this skillfully. Yeah. how to work with this skillfully. Because the recognition that knowing this is a mind state is really important, but there's more that we, than we, that we can do beyond that. So I'd just like to go into this a little bit. And using a system um, called RAIN, very appropriately today, that is applicable to these particular um, distracting patterns of mind, but is actually applicable to anything that comes up as a challenge to us in practice. Okay, so the, the, the fact that it's called RAIN is it's an acronym to help us remember. So the R stands for recognize, which I've already touched on. So we recognize this is present, yeah? Desire is present, aversion is present, restlessness is present. Dullness and low energy are present. Doubt is present. We recognize this is here. And this allows us, this recognition gives us some breathing space. Yeah, like I was just saying. It means that we, we, we're not so limited. Yeah, we've got some space around this. And this space can grow. Yeah, this space can grow. We can can be really helpful is just to take a few breaths 
with this. You say, okay, there's a lot of restlessness here. There's a lot of mental activity here. I'm not trying to change it, but can I just take some breaths with it? Yeah? Breathe. (coughs) Breathe. Remembering this is a natural happening. Yeah? Naturally arises in the mind. So the recognition and the breathing space that that it allows, or that it brings, then brings us to the next step, which is the A of the RAIN, which stands for allow. 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 Let it be. So we recognize, and our habitual tendencies would be to try and fix. Yeah? Change. Get back to the breath. Yeah? Quickly! Get back to the breath. You know, that's kind of... But no, we actually take some time to allow that this is what's going on. Yeah. To, and we do this by increasing the space. Yeah, increasing the space. We can do this with the breath or the breath energy like we've been doing. We can do this by stretching the awareness like we've been doing. We can do this by bringing the awareness into the body. Remember I was speaking about how these things are present in the body and in the energy body. Yeah, so we connect to it there. Yeah, so we allow and we relax resistance, which can be counterintuitive. Yeah, because oh, this is a distraction, I don't want it. (laughs) Yeah, so I should do what I can to get rid of it. But first, we need to allow it. Yeah, to stop pushing away against it because that pushing away is actually feeding it, it's part of the process that keeps it alive. So, physically relaxing sometimes, yeah, deep breath, relaxing the body, create space, yeah. Space in the body allows for space in the mind. And particularly relaxing areas of contraction, yeah. So it can be that the whole body is contracted, it might be that there's contraction somewhere in the body. And we do what we can to just bring more space into it and relax. So an example of this is um, with if there's a lot of mental activity that's very tempting, that's very alluring, that's kind of really pulling us a lot. If we can connect, allow the movement of the thought rather than be stuck in the content. Yeah, so that's another way of allowing and creating space. Yeah, so we feel the movement of the thinking. Yeah, again, in the body and the energy body. Can it's like sometimes like a buzz. Yeah, we connect to that. Yeah, that movement of the thinking. And this allows us to know this experience better and more fully. Yeah, remember that initial thing. We're, we're here to understand, and to understand, we need to know. Yeah, to become familiar with. So, recognizing, allowing, spending some time with it means we get to know it better. Yeah, we get to know it better and more fully. And this brings us to the third part, the I of the investigation. Yeah. So we've recognized we're allowed and now we begin 
to investigate. And of course, this is, you know, these they don't happen completely separate from from each other and completely linear. Yeah, but it's helpful to to think in this way. So investigation. Um, the way I like to think about this is we turn what seems like a distraction or a difficulty or something we don't want, we turn that into actually um, a source of insight. Yeah. Do you see this? This is really, really key. It's not, we turn it from being a problem to being um, a learning opportunity. Yeah. Because this is what's happening in experience. Yeah. So how can I actually use this? So again, feeling how it manifests in the body is part of the, man, of, the, of the investigation. How does it manifest in the emotional life? Yeah. In the mental life? What feeds it yeah, can be really interesting. What is feeding it? What is making it keep going or, getting, or get stronger? For example... You know, if there's dullness, is there lack of interest? Yeah? Is there lack of interest in what is here right now? That's feeding dullness or feeding desire or feeding aversion. Yeah? Is there an imbalance of energy? You know, in all of these really important checking. Is there what happens if I reaffirm the posture? Yeah? What happens then? What happens if I connect to my intention? What happens then? So we're beginning to play with it. You know, this is where the playfulness comes in again in the experimentation. We've been talking, we play, we're interested. What weakens it? <laughs> yeah? We've looked at what underlies it, what conditions it, what makes it weaker? How is it affected if I take a long breath? Yeah? How is it affected if I widen the awareness? How is it affected if I bring metta in? You know, all these things. We're using the tools we're cultivating to investigate, to get to know, to play with. Is it constantly there? It's a really important question. Again, remember the solidification that we do. I'm always restless when I meditate. <laughs> Even within the restlessness, is it always there? Or are there moments when it's not, or when it's less? What happens to my experience if I recognize this? How does it change? And this is my favorite. How is it affecting perception? How is it affecting perception? So if there's restlessness in the body, or this dullness that keeps going like that, how is it affecting my perception of this meditation time? <coughs> How is it affecting my perception of myself? Yeah. And begin to play really with the playfulness and experimentation here. And the last part, the N, which is always a little bit awkward, but connects to Nathan's talk yesterday. So the N stands for non-identifying. Yeah, or not identifying. Yeah, it goes back to that sense of a little bit more space. Yeah, so this is happening in the mind, but it's not permanent. It's not going to last forever. It's not who I am. 
It doesn't say anything about me and how good or bad I am at life. Yeah. Not identifying. Mm. Seeing that this too is dependently originating. Yeah? It's coming together out of conditions and conditions will change. And a really interesting condition is my relationship to the experience. Yeah? And saying this, and we have to be really careful here. Yeah? It, it's not about then if it doesn't change or if you, know, it, you still struggle with this, then you're doing something wrong and there's something wrong with you, which is very quickly how our minds will go. Yeah? But here's a part, and we can, through this investigation, through this process, through this non-identification, we can allow more fluidity. So it's dependently origin, originating. It's conditioned by different factors. How does it change when I bring interest? Yeah. How does it change if I don't take it personally? Yeah. How does it change if I feel it in the body? You know, we can start looking at this as ways of unsticking that identification. How does it change when I open out the awareness? Yeah, we're looking at that. So really remembering these are ways of looking that are present. They're ways of looking that are present. And as we practice with them, we loosen them. Yeah, we loosen their hold. Loosen their hold. And as we're doing that, we're actually cultivating more skillful ways of looking at experience. Like interest. Yeah, like kindness. Like investigation. Like allowing. Yeah, like non-identifying. So we're cultivating other ways of looking all the time as we practice (coughs) that are supportive and helpful. So radical shifts moment by moment, like Nathan was speaking about yesterday. Yeah, radical shifts moment by moment. There's a little spider here. That's come to practice with us. It can be an interesting way of seeing ways of looking. Yeah. Uh, You know, here's a spider. (laughs) And what's the conditioned response for us? Different for different people here. And different maybe at different times. Yeah. How far is it <laughs> from me <laughs> would affect how I perceive it. Yeah. And then what if we see it as a creature that's also come to practice or to hear the Dharma? Yeah. What happens then? I remember on one of my first retreats that I ever did, it was in a Tibetan center in near Mekalot Ganj, and there were a lot of, of those little yappy dogs there. I don't like yappy dogs. But someone told me that the, the, the Lama, the main teacher of the center, whenever he came, 
he would put the dogs in his car and drive them around um, a stupa that was there, which is kind of a, an action that, um, that they do in, in Tibetan um, practice to, to kind of gain merit, yeah? so that they would be reborn, they would have a more uh, precious rebirth. Yeah, so he was doing it so they would have a more precious rebirth um, in, in their next life yeah, by, by doing this practice of, of going around um, a holy place. And I, I just remembered it because I remember I was really touched by it and actually really changed my perception of the yappy dogs from just being something annoying to actually being you know, beings um, who have the same value as, as me, you know. Here's someone taking the time to help them, yeah, according to, to his own belief system, and it doesn't matter if we share it or not, but to help them, yeah, to, to connect to, to Dharma uh, in this case. And I, I, yeah, I just remembered it now with this spider. So, yeah, it can look, but it can change, yeah, our ways of looking can change, and it changes the perception of something. And even this very, very simple way of a spider or a yappy dog. I'm just thinking now that I should remember that story more because I still have an aversion to yappy dogs in general. (laughs) So I should bring that into my ways of looking practice a little bit more. And on that cheerful note... Let's have a moment of silence to, to bring this to a close. Yeah. Yes. Is there a way that we can listen to Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll share that at the end so you'll be able to listen to it. So thank you for your listening and your presence. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.